Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 19th of January, Matt Fell taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Matt teaches us about the Trinity. Matt is currently doing a PhD at Cambridge on the origin of language, and he also leads the gap year training for the relational mission movement of churches. Let's take a listen to the session. We're on to the doctrine of the Trinity. I am going to power through this. Um, so... Just do what you need to do to, to get the most out of it, engage with it. Um, you may have lots of questions afterwards, uh, but that's fine. That's really okay. Um, I'm going to say this at the very start. The doctrine of the Trinity is not like a maths equation we have to solve. It's not a test as to how clever you are as a Christian. It is a way of speaking. It's like a set of rules for how Christians talk that protects all good rules look after things don't they you know uh, the offside rule stops you know annoying strikers kind of sharking around the goal all the time yeah it makes keeps things interesting good rules are there in place to protect what's important the doctrine of the trinity is there to protect the most important things that we know about god and the gospel doctrine of the trinity is there to protect the statement god is love the doctrine of the trinity is there to protect everything we say about salvation if the trinity is not true salvation is like there's a bit of a question over it Um, and hopefully we'll unpack why that is the case let's start with the old testament revelation of god i'm going to start there um, because I think you have to. I think you have to, in order to explain the Trinity and how it developed as a doctrine, how Jesus reveals his own divinity and how he talks about, the, how the New Testament talks about the Spirit, you have to go to the Old Testament first. And hopefully what we just did in John's Gospel has taught you something. That actually the more we learn to read the New Testament under, as the fulfilment of the Old Testament, the more we see it in 3D. Um, you know, the more you... Uh, you, you know the kind of the images in the world that the New Testament writers are tapping into, the more explicit Jesus' claims are that he's God. Um, I had a really good question by, from a lad earlier on saying, do you not think it's a little bit harsh on the, the Jewish leaders that they seem to miss the point about who Jesus is? And I used to think that. I used to think, gosh, it's, Give them a hard time, Jesus, because it's a little bit obscure, you know, that you're, you're God incarnate. But actually, everything that Jesus does and says is tapping into who the God of the Old Testament is. Um, and so without explicitly saying, he doesn't turn up and say, hey, guys, look, I'm God incarnate. Let me explain how that works. Father, Son, Spirit. He doesn't do that, does he? But what he, everything he does, everything he says is demonstrating that this is Israel's God come to be with their people. Which is why we have to go to Israel's God and the understanding about him. And we could do a whole session on that, but we're just going to do the, the greatest hits. Greatest hits of Old Testament monotheism. 
I am who I am is the fundamental revelation of who God is. What notes have you got up there? Let me just see. Oh, you've got it all. I don't even need to. You can just write that down. I am who I am. Or you can translate that in different ways. I am what I am. Or I am that I am. Hebrew to English is pretty tricky because English is quite flat and two-dimensional in, compared to, in comparison to Hebrew. Um, God is saying to Moses, nothing else defines what I am or who I am or what I do. God is not dependent upon anything else. God is not dependent upon anybody else. doesn't need anybody to teach him how to be loving. He doesn't need a definition of how to be loving. God is love. God doesn't need anybody to show him how to be a good God. God doesn't need a definition of goodness. God is goodness. God determines what it is to be God. And he determines what God does. And then a little bit later on in the story in Deuteronomy, uh, God teaches, or Moses teaches Israel to say a prayer, to say, um, say a little bit of liturgy, a bit of worship, some set words and the Israelites were to do this every day that's how important this was listen O Israel the Lord our God the word Lord there is an abbreviated version of the name that um, that uh, God gives to Moses it doesn't really work in English but when you abbreviate I am what I am that I am how does that work it bec- I, if I'm totally honest, I can't remember all the details. But in the Old Testament, if you see the name Lord in capitalised letters, it's a reference to the name that, a, that God gives to Moses. Um, and I'm really sorry that I can't remember how that works out. I think it's like a pun is how it works. It like sounds similar to I am. Um, and then later what they do is they, they uh, slightly adapt it because they don't want to save the name of God itself. They, they think that's too holy. So they, they use Lord as an abbreviated form. But there is like a, a, a sound, like a pun between the two. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, we're talking about the Trinity here, that God is Father, Son and Spirit. Uh, so we need to do something about this prayer that the Jewish people prayed every day that the Lord their God is one well um, I want to say that this this use of the word one here is not so much about uh, number um, as it is about identity Um, so Adam and Eve when they become when they're married um, they become one And the same Hebrew word to describe the oneness between a man and a woman in marriage is the word which is used here. So you could say Christchurch Manchester is, you know, a one people, like one together. Um, And it speaks of a unity, doesn't it? And an identity. And that, I think, is more what's going on here. It's not saying that God is one of the gods, that Israel's God is just one of the gods. God is not a member of any class you know, or species of godness. God is the only God. Israel's Lord is the only God. And that doesn't, the Old Testament's interesting because it says that God is, God alone is God. But then throughout the Old Testament, it speaks of the gods of the nations. But what happens is the Old Testament says those gods aren't gods. Yeah? 
There's only one God. And all that God does is one. So the God who is the creator is the same God who saves Israel. The same God who cares for the nations. The same God of justice and mercy. God is one. He is all that he is. You don't get to kind of bracket him down. The same God who, uh, you know, puts judgment upon the nations of Israel is the same God who also seeks their salvation. And Israel are never to forget that. And so when they say, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, they're saying he's unique. And everything that he does is united. There's not lots of different gods of, you know, God of the sun, God of creation, God of salvation. They're saying God is one. One unique identity. It's more about that than, than kind of saying trying to carve God up or pin him down just to, into a number. And then the third, you know, determinative revelation of God in the Old Testament is he's the creator of all things. That's the point of the Genesis story, that God created everything. There's not a separate God for the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the sea. God created all things. And that is uh, repeated again and again throughout scripture in your notes you've got the isaiah passages isaiah particularly in the second half of his book does this a lot we kind of will remind israel call israel back to trusting in god because the god of their salvation is the god who created all things and the fact that they're being saved by the one who has ultimate authority is what makes their salvation good news yeah it's not just that their god's one god amongst many beefing with the others he's the god who created all things including the gods of the nations. Nothing was made except by God. Um, They're the key insights of the Old Testament, and they lead theologians and philosophers to two uh, dense but important words. Um, And you can find them on the next page. Um, The doctrines of God's aseity and God's simplicity... Aseity is just um, an English version of an old Greek word, uh, which um, basically just means kind of self-sufficiency. Or or actually, it's more negative than that. It's like not from anything. Um, God's aseity is that God is not dependent on anything else. Everything is dependent on God. God isn't dependent upon anything else. And then you have the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, which uh, so is not saying God's simple. Um, your, the tables in front of you are complex because they're made up of lots of different parts. You can take the legs off the table, can't you? Um, you, know, you can strip the veneer off the top and take it to pieces and all of that stuff. Um, you and I are complex. We're made up of lots of atoms and cells and all those things. Um, God is not made up of other things. God is not put together through different parts. God is all that he is. So let me give you, let me explain why that matters. God is love. It's not that there is such a thing as love and God just happens to measure up to that. It's not even that there's a thing such as love and God just happens to perfectly measure up 10 out of 10. God is love. There's not a part of God which is loving. 
God is love. God is just. It's not the case that there is such a thing as justice and God just happens to be perfectly just. God is just. He is a definition of just. And you and I might have a struggle reconciling those things together. I often struggle to work out how do I be loved. I mean, I'm disciplining a two-year-old at the moment. Justice and love are very tricky for me. How do I do these things at the same time? Because I'm flawed. I'm a finite, flawed person. I don't know how to always discipline my daughter in love. Sometimes I feel angry of, you know, she stole my muffin. Um, (laughs) Whereas God is just and is loving at the same time. And on one hand, that, that teaches us that his love is always just and his justice is always loving. So on one hand, it kind of collapses them together because God is one, but because we can't know who God fully is, we know him kind of in part. So we, we know his justice and we know his love and we know that they kind of meet together, but we kind of experience them separately. And as we go on a journey of knowing God, the more we learn that his justice, his discipline is his love and his love is judging and disciplining. Um, yeah heavy stuff but really important stuff um, in the biblical writers and you could say well where is it there in scripture what we've just done there is the kind of like the philosophical reflections on the revelation of God there in the Old Testament Um, and I think God's holiness kind of bring these things together In Isaiah 6, the angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness just means God's uniqueness. He's unique in who he is and what he is. um, And in the perfection of his goodness. So... Let's try and simplify this a little bit. You've got this page. The, one, the Holy One of Israel's unique CV. Uh, and we're going to shout out some things that Israel's God alone does. These are things that nobody else could put on their CV. No other gods of the nations could put this stuff on their CV. Uh, only Israel's God. Shout out some options. Saves. He saves, yes. And he says time and time again that nobody can save like he can save because of something else, which else goes that also goes on here. Only, well, yeah, because he's the only true God. Okay, so he's the only God who exists and exists on his own. He doesn't get his existence from anybody else, so he self-exists. He's the only one who saves. What else? Yes. Creates. Yeah, because he's the creator, he's the one who truly can save. Other gods might say they can, you know, do something good for you, but this God can save you in the fullest meaning of that sense because he is the creator. And because of that, he can also heal. Somebody said a heal's over here. Um, because he is the creator, he can heal. Only he can do that. What else can only God do? The only true God. Definitely the only true God. Yeah, he's the only true God. He's, he's the only one who can be true at the end of the day. What else does he do? Saves, yeah, we've had, sorry, we, we did have that from the back, but sometimes, he sees. oh, he sees, yes, he does, yeah, he knows all things, 
Because he, he's the only God. Yeah, omnipotent. Well, omniscient is the term for all-knowing. Omnipotent is the term for all power. Yeah, because he is the creator, he's the one who truly, he does provide for all the nations, and he can provide for your every need, yes. What else? There's one other thing in particular. Pardon, sorry? There's two other things in particular. Judges is one of them. He's the true judge of all the earth because he's the creator. He's the only one with the right to really judge. And the last thing, pardon, sorry? Yeah, he's, he's there in all of creation. He's omnipresent. Yeah, he alone is that. That wasn't what I was getting at, but... He's outside of time, yeah, which again means that he is the only one who can do these things. But the winning star, the golden star goes to, forgives. Only God forgives. Because he's the only one with the right to do so. These things all go into the Holy One of Israel's unique CV. Um, Now, there's this really fun page in your notes, and we're not going to look at it. But this is... A selection of passages you should go and look up sometime where you have these figures in the Old Testament who aren't overtly described to be God but seem to be doing things which only God does. They, they do things which are on God's unique CV. And that raises some questions and the Old Testament just doesn't answer them. Just leaves it out there. So you've got the... Um, You've got the Spirit of God there in Genesis 1, helping God create. Uh, You've got the angel of the Lord, who, uh, particularly in Exodus, you're like, who is this speaking? Is it God or is it the angel of the Lord? Because one minute it says it's the angel of the Lord, and then he seems to be speaking as God. and then Um, Very confusing. Uh, You've got the command of the Lord's armies, who has a similar thing. You have the word of the Lord, who rocks up to Abraham and has a word with him, chats with him, has dinner with him. And then you've got God's wisdom through whom he creates all things. And then also, at times in the Old Testament, God speaks as us. Let us go and do this. Let us do that. Um, but that's, that's some fun that you can have on a rainy day. So we have this, this picture of, of God in the Old Testament, the only God of Israel, who is one. Um, and the Old Testament story finishes unresolved. We're still waiting for a day of the Lord to come, where he will come and really set his people free. He will make their hearts new, overcome the rebellious uh, tyranny of the nations who are rebelling against God. And, and one day God will fix all that seems to have gone wrong in the world. And the New Testament is telling us how God does that. And, it, and God does that through sending his son and his spirit and so a key verse is Galatians 4 when the fullness of time had come at the right moment when God's purposes were working themselves out just at the right time God sent forth his son born born of a woman born under the law and then a few verses later uh, the son is sent so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts to bring about the salvation the Old Testament pointed towards, God sends his son and he sends his spirit. And so we then have to think about who is, who is God's son and who is the spirit. Um, and the answer we're going to get to uh, 
you won't be surprised to know, is they are both God. The Son is God and the Spirit is God. Did the church really think that Jesus was God? Um, Emphatically, yes. But the way the New Testament says that isn't always so explicit as that. A few times it does refer to our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Or you have the the acknowledgement of Thomas when he falls down in front of Jesus and says, my God, my Lord. Um, But most of the time, the way the New Testament tells us that Jesus is God is by describing the things he does and the things he says. And remember God's unique CV. Jesus does things that only the Old Testament said God did. Um, can anybody think of, uh, you've got a big nice list on your notes uh, but we don't have time to go through that can anybody shout out a few answers a few times Jesus does that yeah 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 so Jesus um, is teaching in his house and it's packed and some blokes take the roof off the top and lower uh, a guy down who's paralysed and Jesus says son your sins are forgiven and the Pharisees are like you can't say that only God forgives sins and Jesus is like uh huh get up and walk and he's demonstrating that he is the God of Israel in doing that because he forgives sins and he heals. Now, again, a lad asked me an excellent question earlier on. That in the Old Testament, it says if you claim someone claims to be God, they're crazy, you've got to kill them. Stone them to death, in fact. And that's in place for a good reason. You know, people who claim to be God typically tend to have a problem. Um, and, and issues flow from that. Jesus doesn't come and say, look guys, here I am, I'm God incarnate. But he does the things that indisputably mean that he is God. Um, And you can see this time and time again in the New Testament. And uh, again, the more you know your Old Testament, the more you pick up to it in your your New Testament. So let me give you an example. There's a bit in Job where Job's talking about God. And he says, God treads on the waves of the sea. He passes me by. Treads on the waves of the sea and he passes me by. And then the disciples one night, uh, us, you know, sleeping in a, uh, out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee and a monster storm comes about. And then Mark in particular tells us they looked out and they see Jesus walking on the waves of the storm and he looked to pass them by. And it's an echo of Job's description of God walking on the waves of the sea there. That's how the New Testament kind of says, look who this person is, time and time and time again. And Jesus' teaching himself makes the claim again and again and again. Um, And John's gospel is probably the place he does that most explicitly. Um, The I am sayings that we talked about earlier on. Um, And some of them are, you know, some of them you just cannot be confused as to what he's saying there so he's at one point in chapter eight of john's gospel he's talking to the jews and they bring up abraham um, and he says before abraham was i am and they don't miss his meaning because they say you're not even 50 how were you around before abraham and he just mic drops and walks off it's <laughs> incredible um, and even some of the other sayings i am uh, I am the resurrection and the life. God had dropped a few subtle hints in the Old Testament about resurrection. Um, and it would happen at the end of days and God would do it. 
Um, and when, when Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb and he sees Mary and Martha, uh, Mary is a, or is it Martha? One of them, is a, is, a, is a good first century Israelite girl. And she says, I know I will see my brother again in the resurrection, in the day when God raises everybody. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. God, he's the one who can call people out of the tombs. Um, Yeah, uh, Jesus explicitly knows what he's doing um, when he makes these claims. Um, And again, you can go through the notes to to look in more detail at those things. Um, C.S. Lewis gets it right. I think, and I think this is probably just the best, I mean the church has been making this argument for centuries, but I think C.S. Lewis just has that habit of taking really good meaty theology and just explaining it really clearly. He says, I am here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, and you could insert, do, did the things that Jesus did, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. And then beneath there, you've got my kind of four steps. If I'm talking to somebody and I want to make the case that Jesus uh, claim to be God I would kind of make these four steps and I'd take them to some of the passages of scripture like I've done with you and said look this is what Israel believed was unique about God look at what Jesus is doing here self-consciously so hopefully that will be helpful to you Um, so God sends his son the word made flesh who is a chip off the old block Remember when we talked about the word earlier on, the perfect repetition, perfect communication of who God is? Um, Well, the word, this this perfect communication of who God is, is is his son. God doesn't just view his word like, oh, that was a good idea I expressed. Because God is good and, and glorious and loving and just, when God communicates God, God loves his communication of God. This is, when you do Trinitarian theology, you say sentences like that and you just, you think to yourself, but we're grasping around at the deepest mysteries here. And so God loves his word and his father to to his word who is his son. And he sends his son for our salvation. He sends his son in the flesh for our salvation and this is crucial because when the church was having to defend its claim that Jesus was equally God with God the Father at the same time it was having to defend its claim that that the word became flesh because you've kind of got two groups of heretics you've got these group of heretics in the ancient world who are like what no way can you know the one God be two or let alone three but on the other hand you've got these heretics going no way would God ever come down and touch anything as dirty as human flesh or live in the world like we do and so the church is having to deal with both of these at the same time but it is of the utmost importance that the one who is son of God fully God with the father becomes fully human like you and I and the ancient church put it like this 
he, Jesus, became like us so that we might become like him. Or John says it, you know, he came to his own, he came to us, the word put on flesh so that we might receive rights to become children of God. He became like us so that we became like him. And that doesn't mean we become God, but it means that we are drawn into this loving relationship with God the Father. We are as loved before the Father as the Son has always been loved. And one day our bodies will be resurrected and restored and um, more glorious than you could possibly imagine. That's a different thing. So was he really man? Well, yes, he was. And there's a, uh, you've got a list of notes here on this page. And I'm going to rattle through very quickly what is being said in each one of those things. <clears throat> John 1.14, the word was made flesh. You know the word incarnated? The best way to understand it is uh, when I'm cooking chili con carne, what am I having? I'm having chili with what? Carne is a Latin word for meat. Jesus comes in the meat, which I, I think is, sounds weird, but almost quite a helpful way, isn't it? Like he becomes enfleshed, meat like you and I. Luke chapter 2, we hear that he was born of a woman. Uh, Later in chapter 2 of Luke, he grew up. Luke talks about how he becomes strong and grows and learns things, grew in knowledge and wisdom and strength. John chapter 4, when he goes to the well to meet the woman from Samaria, he says he's tired. Um, Later in John's gospel on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst well, I think something spiritually significant is going on there, that the fountain of all life is thirsting. But, you know, he's also experiencing physical thirst. Matthew 4, when he's in the wilderness, Jesus gets hungry. Luke 23 says that Jesus grew weak on the cross. He died. He was suffered. He bled when people hurt him. And then... Even in the resurrection, he still has a human body. It's transfigured, it's glorified, it's, it's, it surpasses our bodies. But he's still a human body. He can still barbecue with his bros on the beach. Mm. So from the apostles onwards, the church is taught both the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ. Fully God, fully man. Uh, and that has always been deeply controversial. In the second century... A chap called Irenaeus. Um, if you ever want to read a bit of old school theology, read Irenaeus. He's good worth. He's a bit feisty at times, but I think, you know, aren't the best of them. Uh, and he writes, he has a book called Against Heresies. The first half of it's pretty intense, so you can skip that, because he just mainly just describes the stuff he's beefing with. But the second half is glorious. He said that God the Father works through his two hands... The Son and the Spirit. Everything God does, he does through the Son and through the Spirit. Um, and we, we rightly sing, don't we? Um, you know, in Christ alone my hope is found. Uh, but even as we sing that, uh, the name Christ evokes a third person of the Trinity. Because Christ just is a Greek t- translation of the word Messiah and it means anointed anointed one who is anointed and uh, in the old testament you'd anoint people by pouring oil but oil is a is a picture of the spirit throughout scripture and so the anointed the messiah is one who has god's spirit upon him to do a particular task 
and that task is to save God's people. Um, and so whenever you read the word Christ, try and get into the habit to read anointed by the Spirit. In fact, sometimes if I'm translating the Bible, I, I will purposely translate the anointed one in place of Christ. Because just sometimes we get Christ, you know, it, it becomes a bit familiar to us. Um, everything Jesus does, he does through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, in Luke 1, Mary conceives Jesus by the Holy Spirit. He is fully human, but he's, he's brought about about a male uh, intervention. He's brought about by the, the work of a spirit. Um, in Mark 1, um, the spirit falls on Jesus at, the baptism, at his baptism and then drives Jesus off into the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness to take on Satan because the spirit is upon him. Uh, throughout his work, his life, uh, particularly in Luke, Jesus is recorded as doing miracles and healings by the Spirit of God. And he says that in Matthew 12 as well. Everything Jesus does, he does by the Spirit. And as John's Gospel goes on, we learn that Jesus, uh, after he's died, is going to go back to being with the Father. But he says, it's better that I do so. Because if I do, I can then send the Spirit to you. So Jesus is saying a part of what he is doing in dying, in rising again from a grave, and then ascending to heaven is, is preparing, doing everything that is necessary to be able to pour the Spirit out on all people. Just as God had dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament, as, he dwelt, as, as God's presence dwells in Jesus, Jesus says, I'm doing all of this so God's presence can dwell in you, my followers, and in those who are going to hear your message. And in uh, John 16, Jesus says this, the spirit will declare to you all that is mine. All that is the fa- my father's, the father has given to me and the spirit will come to you to declare. And that word declare, you can translate as share. The spirit will come to share with you all that is mine. Jesus comes to give us the rights to be children of God. He becomes like us that we might become like him. And how that happens is he ascends to heaven and he pours the spirit into our hearts. So salvation is not accomplished apart from the spirit. Who is this spirit though? Is he just an angelic figure um, or is he God himself? Well, the fact that I'm saying salvation is only accomplished through the spirit should give us a hint. Uh, But again, the New Testament uh, does what it does with Jesus. It doesn't explicitly say the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, fully God. The New Testament presents the work and the person of the Spirit uh, as fulfilling those things that only God can do. And indirectly, the New Testament refers to the Spirit as God. So, uh, some examples. In Acts Five, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and they lie to the church uh, about what they've given, and they both are, both are judged and killed there and then. And Peter says to them both before uh, before they drop down, "Why have you lied? Um, why have you lied to the Spirit? Why have you lied to God?" And so Peter makes the link between lying in the presence of the Spirit and lying to God. Uh, there's a couple of references in Hebrews. So in Hebrews nine. Um, The writer refers to the eternal spirit. (coughs) Only God is eternal. Um, And then in chapter 10, 
the writer to the Hebrews takes an Old Testament passage from Jeremiah 31, where God speaks, and it's clearly the Lord speaking to his people, and, and the writer to the Hebrews puts that, those words in the mouth of the Spirit. It says, the Spirit says this. Um, and then the Spirit is referred to as holy uh, nearly a hundred times. And although we become the holy ones in the New Testament, um, only God is truly holy and those that God gives holiness to. And we become holy by the Spirit coming into us. The great lie about the Holy Spirit is that he's a power or an energy. You know, we like to get a little bit of return of a Jedi when it comes to thinking about the Holy Spirit. Um, but that's not the case. Throughout scripture, uh, and in particular in, in John's gospel, in the mouth of Jesus, uh, the spirit is referred to as he. He is going to come to you. Um, it's a personal uh, being, or not being. This is, this, is, this is God. This is a manifestation of God. Um, you've got... I mean, I've given you a lot of notes for this session. I do like two whole days in Doctrine of God and the course that I run. Um, so there's some bonus material on the spirit for you there. Uh, don't say we don't spoil you. So have you seen what I've done here? So we've looked at how the Old Testament presented God. This is the unique God. Only God does these things. And yet the New Testament says Jesus does these things and the spirit does these things. And then the New Testament goes a step further as well. And it gives us all these really explicit statements um, of, of the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, doing things together or being referred to together. Um, and so you've got like two and a half pages of notes. Uh, and I'm going to read to you, uh, I think some of, the, some of the, I mean, they're all glorious. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, I did not come proclaiming the testimony about God about God with lofty speaker wisdom for I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified I came to talk to you about God and what I did is I told you about Jesus in demonstrations of the spirit's power and then later in Corinthians Paul says this now there's a variety of gifts but the same spirit there are a variety of services but the same Lord there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Do you see the logic that's working out here? Paul is, is, is saying, uh, he's referring to all three members of the Trinity and unified their work together. Um, lovely thing at the end of 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. like this one from 1 Timothy I'm writing these things dot 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 so you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God dot 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 great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness he was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in in the world taken up in glory um Andy's rustling his keys because in a minute he's going to whisk me off to the train station because my train leaves in about half an hour um 
So the New Testament gives us all this data on God of salvation, that the Father sends a Son and a Spirit to save. And all three are referred to as God in the New Testament. But the New Testament itself doesn't hammer down the doctrine of the Trinity. And that takes a number of of centuries for it to happen. And really, it all gets hammered out in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century. Um, And what happens is people within the church, people who claim to be Christians... Um, start distorting the truth and kind of backpedaling and say, okay, I know for like 200 years we've talked about Jesus as our God and Lord, but we should probably qualify that. Jesus is a God. He's not just an angel, he is a God, but he's not like fully God with the Father. And so a chap called Arius, and uh, I wish I had put uh, Dr. Evil from Austin Powers as the picture of Arius, because he's like the arch villain of all church history. Um, and then various other figures come out with different heresies. And so the church have to work this out, um, a, a number of councils. And it's, it's shocking. So in uh, 328, they have a council at a place called Nicaea in Turkey. And they come up with, uh, uh, with a creed, which says, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and the earth, dot, dot, dot. I believe in, in the Son, dot, 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 and for our salvation came and died. And I believe in, in the Spirit. Um, and the church is like, great, we've got that settled then, we can all go home. And then basically everybody waters it down afterwards. And a chap called Athanasius, who's also really worth reading, his text on the incarnation of the word is great. Um, he basically has to like contend against the rest of the known world uh, for the doctrine of Nicaea to say, no, the Son is equally God with the Father. And so is the Spirit. And these battles rage on, and then at the end of a century, it's finally kind of pinned down, and then the pressure gets put onto whether Christ really came in the flesh. And you've got bonus notes about that, uh, the break, the Chalcedon uh, definition of Christian faith, where the church really focuses on, did Christ fully come in the flesh? Um, and you have the creeds as well in there. Um, there's two creeds at the church tends to stick by the Apostles' Creed, which was written sometime around the early 3rd century and, uh, you know, acknowledges as God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but doesn't delve into the specifics of their relationship with one another. Um, And that's why the Council of Nicaea has to happen. And they really have to hammer it down. And eventually the the term that they come upon at the the Council of Nicaea, and then it's repeated at the end of the 4th century, is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are homoousios in Greek, the same substance. That there is one Godness, and they are all... No, hang on, take that back. That all three are God, and that all three are fully God, the same being, the same... Even being is not the right word. They are... All three of them are the source of everything else which comes. Why does all this matter? Well, two things. One, the doctrine of the Trinity reveals that our salvation is by God alone. God himself comes in the flesh and suffers on our behalf to forgive our sins. And so when you see Jesus in the flesh, you are seeing the full glory, the image, the picture, the perfect representation of God the Father. Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 12, he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Which means when we see him at the well, forgiving that woman who's had five husbands, we are seeing the full picture of who God is. 
when we see him at Lazarus' tomb weeping over the death of his friend, that is how God feels about death. And you can be confident and assured in that. When we look at Jesus, we are looking at who God is. And when we, when we say that Jesus has saved us, we're saying God, the maker of all things, the one who's the highest authority, has saved us. The doctrine of the Trinity defends that. It also is what teaches us that God is love. Because for all eternity, before the world began, God wasn't there on his own twiddling his thumbs. He was a father loving the Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And when God created the world, he didn't, and he created it for his own glory, no doubt, he didn't create it, create it because he needed it. God was already complete. He was already perfectly fulfilled. The Father delighting in the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so when creation happens, it's so that that party can go public. That we can all be invited in to share the goodness, the life, the love of a triune God. 